With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening and welcome to the eighth episode of Red Shirts and Runabouts. A Star Trek podcast that's part of the Heroes Podcast Network. I am one of your hosts, Greg Bosco, and with me as always are the two very excellent co-hosts, Derek. Hello. And Jeremy. Hello, hello. So, this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the the ninth episode, which was, it was definitely a doozy, and uh, it's another throwback to an old school original series title, Into the Forest I Go. And uh, before we get in really in-depth into the discussion on the spoilers and the story, Derek, what were your thoughts on this episode this week? Oh, man. Um, overall, this this episode kind of sealed the deal for me as far as the show is concerned. I love this episode. I loved pretty much everything about it, and I'm just super bummed that I have to wait two months to see more. <laughs> yeah, that two-month wait, that's something we haven't had in Star Trek, and... Uh... I can't remember if Enterprise did that. I mean, most shows have a mid-season break, but not... Like, this one seems a lot longer than your average break. So, I mean, they did shift one episode to the side, so I guess it it's a week longer than we would originally have had. But still, I mean, just, you know, November 12th was episode 9, and then I think it's January 7th is episode 10. So... Yeah, usually I, I, that mid-season break concept, I think, was kind of made a big thing with, like, the AMC serialized dramas, like starting with Mad Men. Um, before that, it wasn't that big of a break. That's uh-huh. that's kind of a, a recent last few, last, last decade or so thing, I think. Uh, maybe it doesn't help that, or maybe it does help that, the fact that it ended on such a, uh... <laughs> the episode was pretty good, was pretty good. Jeremy, what did you think of it? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I like. I mean, the the only real complaint for it is that there's there's not more to watch immediately. <laughs> and you know, I remember I said a couple weeks ago that I thought this might. I thought one episode might be a good introductory episode to Discovery, but I think this this episode this week really shows the capability of the cast, crew, and the story. With yeah, though I think this is more a, a culmination of a lot of different things. So I I certainly wouldn't want anyone to start here because. They would they would definitely be missing out on oh, kind of missing so much, yeah. Yeah. I think that if you were to start with the mud time travel episode and then you follow that up with the Saru Away mission episode and then this one, if you do those three, I I think that's a really good way to just jump in kind of head first. Yeah, definitely. Because last week and this week kind of made made it a two part episode because it really was building off of what happened last week, like mm-hmm. directly. Well, and it's kind of like these three, ep- those past three episodes are very solid Star Trek episodes. I mean, there's a lot of Star Trek stuff that happens. And, you yeah. know, I'm that guy that always calls out all the haters because when people are still complaining about just the small stuff, I'm like, that's, 
complain about the big stuff. I get it, but when you're still complaining about the uniforms at, at episode nine, I'm like, I just don't understand why. Why are you watching the show if you hate the uniforms even that much? Are people still complaining about the uniforms? Well, they're now they're complaining about the fact that since, the, like Derek pointed out, since this is actually so close to the original series timeline, how did they go from these blue and silver and gold uniforms to all the other original series style? I'm like, just yeah. stop. <laughs> I, look, the, the truth is, we were not going to get the 1966 velour T-shirt uniforms. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't look. You know, it doesn't look like a professional production in 2017. That's what they did in the 60s. Yeah. And I was, look, if you went into Discovery expecting the uniforms to look like original series uniforms, I think you were kidding yourself a little bit. The The fact that, you know, Deep Space Nine kind of did it with, uh, you know, Trials and Tribulations is, is one thing because they spliced into an actual episode. But to expect Discovery to look like it was made in the 60s, uh, that just wasn't going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. It's just something people are finding a reason to complain about. Mm-hmm. Well, so I don't need the thing. I don't even know how to really talk about this episode without just jumping right into the story. So let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. So, you know, before into we go the to forest, you go. Yeah. Before we go to black alert, everybody, <laughs> we're about to talk about spoilers and the storyline of this of into the forest. I go. So if you haven't seen it, pause now and come back in, uh, 25 or 30 minutes. <laughs> so, um, opening up really quick, I love that the episode, the way it, the way that aired, it feels like, and I know it, I know timeline-wise it does, it literally picks up right when the last episode ended. Mm-hmm. Which, they don't waste any time, they just jump right into it, and Lorca being Lorca. It does show an interesting side of Lorca, because, you know, he, he has been fairly selfish, in doing whatever he needs for his own gain. But at the same time, he also wanted to protect the Pavo, who would be completely you know, defenseless and everything like that. So at the end of the day, he may be an imperfect captain, but he is not a a black and white bad person. Yeah, I, th- I think kind of the core of Lorca is that he has his own agenda that he follows, but at the same time, he... You know, he doesn't, he's not guilty of dereliction of duty. Like, he's, he's happy to save the Pavo, but it's also in an attempt to attack the Klingons. So it's kind of like, he's, he's doing his own thing, but he's also doing everybody else's thing at the same time. Yeah, he, uh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, he recognizes the importance of their scanning ability, but then he's also at the same time. Telling his crew, look, we can do this because we're the only ship around that can actually save them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the cynical angle would be like all of this stuff that he says to statements about, you know, scanning and, and taking all this like extra extra data and mapping and being an explorer. Either the cynical view, you can say that Lorca is manipulating his statements, but at the same time, it seems just as uh, just as realistic that he's actually interested. So it's it's still kind of hard to know. I'm still like either either he's the master manipulator or he's just a very complicated fleshed out character, which relative to everybody else seems more likely. No, I think he's just really complicated because they allude to it a bit in in some of his conversations with statements is that, you know, it's war right now and we have to win this war. But once the war is over, it's back to exploration. It's back to 
the real mission of the Federation. And I think he wants to get back to it, but he also knows that sometimes it's difficult to do what must be done, and he has to cross the line to keep the Federation from falling apart. Well, and I like how he plays that card with Stamets, because when they're talking about doing the jumps and getting and beaming people on board to lay the sensors and all that, and he says to Stamets, he's like, look, if you were interested in just research, you could have just stayed on Earth, or you could have stayed on a planet. Right. You chose to go into space because... Like Jer- I think it was Jeremy just mentioned a moment ago, you're an explorer at heart, Stamets. You're a researcher, but you want to get out there and physically do the do the exploration aspect. Um, and so, I mean, that's yeah. You know, I don't know. Again, I don't know if he's actually turning into a tardigrade, but there's obviously weird stuff going on with Stamets. Uh, but we'll we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> what would you guys think of? Uh, it's very old school Trek. I, I'll admit the. Uh, we're going to beam people over to the enemy ship to basically do the sabotage. Not oh, sabotage. It, um, that that was so Star Trek, what they did with yeah. that piece of the episode. Yeah, The, the explanations about, you know, um, the, the little technological pieces they had to use and the, oh, this thing's going to mask our life signs and make us appear Klingon. Like, that was so old school, just typical Star Trek. Um, and maybe that's what's really selling me is, like, th- these last three episodes have all felt much more trekky. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it feels like they're kind of moving on from world building and settling into just standard Trek storytelling, which is what I'm sure a lot of people have been waiting for. Mm-hmm. Well, and they do it in the way that, and uh, I like what Derek was saying, it stays loyal to what the show's done. And, you know, I'm the one that always jokes about Star Trek's always had that, that throwaway line. They do it in a way that feels natural in this episode, even with the, 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 um, the putting of the sensors on the Klingon ship. And they're like, look, we need to get inside to this ship. And I think it was Burnham. It's like, oh, but by the way, when they decloak, there's a point where their shields still aren't up and we can beam over. I mean, that's been done in Star Trek multiple times mm-hmm. throughout yeah. all of the series with cloaked ships. So I'm like, that's, that's kind of cool. I like that. Yes, as much like verisimilitude was, was added from all of this like the life science scanners and the, the tactical packs and all the stuff that they went over with. The one thing that I definitely thought was silly was the beacons were emblazoned with the Federation logo. <laughs> yep. But they always like, are. Everything always is. It's like you yeah. make these things specifically, like these were clearly fabricated an hour ago for this plan. And they just happen to have like brought to you by the Federation in case any Klingon comes across this. Well, I think we don't the, want this the little, covert object. The little scanners questions. themselves even uh, were had like a verbal command. It's like uploading to the Discovery. I'm like, why would you have that? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it felt so much though, like, you know, just the way they, they've always done things is that there's some template out there when you go to your replicator, you know, and it's like, you're going to use, you know, color template five. And that's what the logos are going to look like and everything. Right. I thought that was pretty funny. The The only thing I didn't really like about the sensors is they were huge. So yeah. I, I feel like the the sensors being discovered, there was a really big risk there. <laughs> um, yep. You know, yeah, like, for her to go right up to the bridge and just like stand five feet away from everybody. It's just like, okay, well. Yeah. Michael's Michael's really just going right up to it, huh? She, re- she really was. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, I, I, I just, I felt... Like the whole concept of they've got to you know sneak something onto the ship was a really nice way for them to solve this issue of we have to find the cloaked ship, but we know we can't do anything too easy because then why haven't any of the future shows you know been able to to do it? 
right? So they had to come up with some explanation that was plausible, but also really difficult and risky. Right. I like that. So let's talk about now that we're, they're actually on the ship, on the Klingon ship, and they're putting the sensors down. The scenes with Tyler and Lorel took me by surprise. The level of uh, graphic intensity. Of, oh, yeah. I mean, it, that's that's something we have to talk about is first Star Trek nudity. Well, first off, I, I want to point out that I think that these flashbacks during his PTSD episodes, I, I think seal the deal that he's certainly not Voke. No, he's he, not Voke. He's not gone. Voke. Yeah. Right. Uh, now, I do think it leads credit, credence, especially towards the end of the episode, that he may unwillingly be an agent for the Klingon Empire now. Because uh, she has some type of power over him, I believe, is what they were alluding to. But yeah, all right. So they they had some uh, interspecies sex, and we saw you know some some Klingon nudity, which we had never seen before. So how how did you guys feel about that? <laughs> I mean, um. <laughs> how do we talk about this? <laughs> it was the way they... Yeah, it's, it's hard for three guys to talk about female Klingon nudity and, and not sound creepy either way. <laughs> the one thing that I was mean, really intense about the episode is they showed the nudity, but then they kind of threw the Event Horizon imagery in there because they interspliced, like, the sex, or the... It wasn't sex, it was rape. The rape with, like, the torture, and they kept intersplicing the images, and I was like, holy crap, this is just a mental... You are seeing hundreds of hours of stuff in, like, five seconds. And yes. that was... Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, they were condensing seven months of Ash Tyler's rape, victimization, and torture. It was very, it was very upsetting. Which is something we've never seen in Star Trek, like, to this level. I mean, there's been, you know, hints and stuff about the torture aspect, you know, Picard being tortured by the Cardassians... But Star Trek has never broached a topic of, like, torture via rape to this no, degree. Sex is usually left out of Star Trek most of the time. You know, I mean, the biggest conversations about sex in Star Trek just have to do with procreation, like, you know, in Terra Prime and Enterprise or, you know, of course, Tom and Balana and Voyager. So I think that this was a really big step for them to take and an important one because, you know, Violent torture from, you know, just, you know, breaking bones and cutting skin and things like that are, are shown so often in dramatic television and movies, uh, war films, things of that nature, that to bring in this extra level um, that really showed what Ash had to do just to survive really just increased the intensity a, a lot for me. I really brought home the whole concept of this guy is messed up. He, he has severe PTSD, and it's not going to be going away anytime. And with the PTSD aspect, obviously we now know Cornwall survived. Um, yeah. I thought they were going to go with the paralyzed thing, like Captain Pike, but I guess they, mm. at the end of the episode, they're like, oh, she's going to make a full recovery. But when Tyler was having his PTSD flashbacks in Cornwall, who you both pointed out a couple weeks ago, is a psychiatrist by trade who happened yeah. to become an admiral. And she pointed, and she was talking to Burnham. She's like, "Look, he's not useful to you right now. He's he's in he's trouble. In shock. He is yeah. reliving all of the torture that happened to him." And I think it took even Burnham by surprise because Burnham, being raised in the Vulcan lifestyle, you know, the Vulcans. I don't know what the Vulcan concept of torture is. I we've never talked about that. Nobody's ever really talked about that. But her twenty years of education, twenty five years of education with Vulcans, 
she might not have a good understanding of exactly what Tyler's going through. Yeah, another thing I, I couldn't help but think about, and it kind of recontextualizes it in a, in a dark way, is uh, there's so much talk from Worf um, across Next Generation and definitely going into DS9 about how Klingon sex is, is too violent for like most soft human beings to handle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it kind of makes it kind of makes his comments about that much more upsetting in retrospect. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this, this took a concept that we had heard about, right? Because, you know, there, there were jokes in TNG and of course he gets together with Jadzia and DS9, uh, things of that nature. But this really brings it into a very real and very dangerous reality of, of what the difference is between Klingons and humans from this perspective. Um, and, you know, th- there's a lot more to this psychological level because, you know, Ash talks about how he, he saw that opening as a way to survive and he had to put himself through that just to, you know, so they wouldn't kill him. And he was able to make it off that ship because he found this, this area that he could, you know, where Laurel could find an interest in him. And that's, I mean, this, it doesn't really get much more real than that, having to to make a conscious decision like that just to survive. That's a great point. And it just shows either that Tyler is, I said, like I said, like you said, he's obviously not Volk. He's not willingly helping the Klingons, but he's tried to survive long enough and put himself through all that hell that he may mentally not even all be there anyways. And he might just be putting on a front. I think Burnham kind of hints at that, that he's putting on a better face than is actually what's going on in his brain. Yeah. And I mean, I assumed he was putting on some kind of a front to some level because you know they focused on Lorca a little bit uh, before he sent you know Cornwall off. Is that you know these bad things are happening and then you jump right back into the chair? And you know Ash is of course the exact same way. Ash was a a prisoner for seven months and now he's the chief of security on a you know uh, experimental vessel. Has he undergone a legitimate psych eval? Is there a counselor on board discovery? Uh, is he getting therapy of any kind? It certainly seems like he's not. And he's in a pretty sensitive position on the ship. So this this is a huge security breach if he is not fully in control. Well, and that's, that's something that kind of is a, is a theme of the episode is everyone is compartmentalizing trauma sustained from this conflict. So you have Ash with his PTSD that he's trying to act like isn't a problem. You have Lorca with everything that he's been through and just kind of pressing forward. And you have Stamens, which is the the thing we haven't gone into too much yet in this episode about the, the core plan is to send them over to the ship of the dead, plant these sensors while Stamens does 133 spore jumps. That's, yeah. And we've, we've seen what one or two spore jumps does to him, and we saw that a, you know, a medium amount of spore jumps, spore jumps uh, completely drained the tardigrade, the OG tardigrade, and, you know, they're, they're putting him through this just, man, oh man. Also, uh, one thing we didn't talk about is uh, they spore jump out of warp drive, which was interesting. Like, there was no loss of momentum. They were just in full warp heading back to the starbase and then spore jumped to a complete standstill, which is from, from a technical standpoint, that's interesting to think about. Yeah. I didn't even know that was the thing. 
I thought they almost basically had to power down the warp engines to use this four drive almost. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense because the ideal, the idea is that this, you know, mycelium network is literally everywhere. Um, so it shouldn't really matter what velocity you're moving, I suppose. I guess it depends on how warp drive works, right? That's always an argument too. But what Stamets had to go through though, I mean, at first when they're like 133 jumps, I chuckled a little bit because that felt, you know, very tricky too. There's this episode of Voyager, I'm drawing a blank on the name, where they have to pilot through this particular part of space and do these miniature little warp jumps to get through it. So they have the computer, you know, perform, you know, a couple hundreds of these little warp jumps. And it just made me think of that. But then you have a human brain that has to control this whole thing. And it's just basically getting hit on the head with a frying pan after every single jump. And it wasn't that kind of Hollywood speed through either. It was, he's like on the verge of death. And uh, they're like, well, how many jumps are left? Oh, like 96. (laughs) (laughs) And they did those 133 jumps in rapid succession. I mean, it was, what, a a second and a half between each jump or whatever? Yeah, all the while, uh, Culber was just shooting up his... Are they are they married? Is his husband? Uh, I assume... at, at the very least, they're partners. I don't think they've specified how marriage... Like, I don't even know, like, is marriage even... I guess marriage is a thing in Star Trek, so they might be married. They haven't specified. They just haven't taken each other's last names. But, uh, yeah, Culber having to stand there and, you know, pump his partner full of drugs... Yeah. While he's going through this, it's just like, it's just everyone had a lot of trauma this episode. Yes. Yeah, it was, it was very intense. Um, I mean, it basically, whatever, 133 jumps in 40 minutes. I remember they said it was going to take 40 minutes. So however often the jumps had to take place. And, you know, I, I can only imagine... That just from a, just a straight mental perspective, his his brain has to just be so jumbled, and for Colbert to be able to focus and think on his feet and handle that situation when it's so close to home says a lot about his character. Um, but it does lead an interesting question, which is since he's not the chief engineer or chief uh, excuse me chief medical officer, where is the chief medical officer? Colbert's <laughs> not the CMO. I. Not that I, I understood. I was I was under the impression he was one of the doctors on the ship, huh. and there was a chief medical officer. And so, if I'm understanding that correctly, I, wouldn't this be when you would want your chief medical officer involved? Uh, yeah, because you don't want... I mean, even in reality, you never want to be the doctor who's treating your, your spouse, your wife, your husband. Right? I mean, I mean that's kind of the whole idea. Yeah, the uh, the safety net of impartiality sometimes is important. Like he almost pulled yeah, the plug on the whole mission because he's like he was calling, telling the captain, he's like, I, "We got to stop." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. I mean, he's certainly acting as though he's the CMO. I'd be surprised if there is a different one. Well, a- according to his memory alpha page, it just says uh, that he was a physician aboard the USS Discovery. Um, hmm. So it doesn't actually say. I mean, it doesn't say he was the. Um, Chief medical officer, it just says he's a physician. It's under occupation as well. So that yeah. leads me to believe that he's not. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll pull his up. Rank is, his rank is lieutenant commander. Which, I, I, I mean, that could be a, a chief medical officer. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, it varies, of course, depending on the ship. I know, you know, Crusher was a full commander. Um, 
but it was also the flagship of the Federation with a thousand people on board. So, right. you know. <laughs> she had a medical t- staff. Exactly. Yeah. Now, it sounded like they, that this was the same case here that there was a CMO and then maybe two or three other physicians, and Culber is one of those two or three. But, uh, you know, either way, you would think more than one doctor would be involved given how important and risky this mission was. Yeah. Yeah. Also, also according to Memory Alpha, another tidbit about this episode, in addition to the first episode of a TV Star Trek to show nudity, uh, first male male kiss on a Star Trek show. Really? Because yeah. I remember yeah. the, the first female uh, lesbian kiss was DS Nine. Yeah. So yeah, That's I guess this, I guess this would be the first uh, male male kiss. Yeah, good for yeah, that. I didn't really think about it, but yeah, no, that, that's wonderful. I, I thought it was a really good scene, and I love. There's a joke that st- that Anthony Rapp makes uh, that's super, super easy to miss, and I'm not even gonna try pronouncing the name of the of the production. But there's this production that Stamets says that he wants to take Colbert to when this is all over. And what's really great about it is <laughs> is that both of these actors were together uh, in Rent, the musical, and that musical is based off of this show that yeah, Stamets La, wants La to Bohem. take over to. What, what was it? La Bohème. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I just thought that was a really just fantastic nod to the two of them outside of Star Trek. That's kind of um, clever. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, I like that a lot. And let's talk about, since we're still on, on when they're on the Klingon ship, let's talk about uh, the the fight <laughs> that Burnham has. Sure. Um, Badass Burnham. And I love it because... <laughs> She's badass, but she's not, like, overwhelming. And I always remember DS9, like, when the Klingons invade DS9. And mm-hmm. it's, like, random Starfleet officer zero, zero, 001 can fight, like, three Klingons at a time. And I'm like, wait right. a second. Yeah. I'm like, of all of you on DS9, there should be exactly three people that can hold their own. Odo, mm-hmm. Worf, and Kira, because she was fighting the Cardassians since she was, like, six. I'm like... Right. Even Cisco is as tough and badass as he is. When was the last time he fought a Klingon in hand-to-hand combat? When was the last? Bash- Bashir might be able to since he's oh. an augment. That's that's I a good point. More mental. <laughs> well, I know because I remember they said his physical stuff was even better. His strength, yeah. well, speed, yeah, his, reflexes. His, yeah, hand-eye coordination. So he could he could ninja him up a little bit. But I think his raw strength was not. Uh, he could just. No. He's not lifting cars off of anyone. He could hit him with darts <laughs> from far away. There right. you go. I like it. But I like it. I like that because Burnham, she, she's doing good in her fight, but she's not out and outright winning. It's like yeah. at, at no point do you feel like, oh, she's one flip away from just ending everything. I mean, like, man, this the, the this Klingon actor, he's got some chops too, and I like that. Well, also, this is the first, like, hand-to-hand fight sequence in a Star Trek. Even, I mean, the, the most recent would have been Enterprise, and those fight scenes were still that Kirkian two-fisted slam that would just knock people out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is this is a legit hand-to-hand combat. People are getting cut and staying on their feet. So it's it's like it's finally a realistic fight. It it feels like two people fighting and not just a tropey sci-fi, you know, slam punch. And I mean there were a couple of times where Cole was basically caught monologuing. Um, you know, where he's like choking Michael and he could just snap her neck if he wanted to, but he's so cocky that he keeps her around and she's able to, you know, figure something out to keep the fight going, which I thought was, was realistic because at the end of the day, 
a Klingon should, you know, nine times out of ten win that fight. Um, and when she, when she jumps off the the railing and just, you know, that's when she gets transported, I thought was a really cool moment. It reminded me um, a bit about, uh, you know, in uh, the 09 film, you know, uh, where Kirk jumps off the the drill to catch Sulu. Oh, yeah. You know? Uh, kind of reminded me of that. The Gotham. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they kind of recreated uh, the scene a little bit in Star Trek Beyond as well. When he saves... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. What's her face when jumping off the motorcycle? Yeah, that's, that's a good shot. I like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, Jayla. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, that's a good moment, too. Uh, so I thought the fight was really cool. I like that she was able to get Giorgio's um, comm badge back. Uh, that he was using as a toothpick, Chris. And one thing that I really love that makes so much sense, and it's totally a retcon, but I love it, is that the comm badges are essentially dog tags. Yep. Yeah. I love that. Which makes sense. I mean, they always had to serve more of a purpose than just... Because, yeah, Starfleet's an exploration organization, but it's also military. Yeah. So they're going to have identification of some kind on their uniforms. So I like that's a retcon. I I agree with you, Derek. I support this retcon. Yeah, that's fine. I, yeah. I also really like that she just kind of popped her universal translator open. And it, it's kind of slowly adapted to the linguistic differences and then just full on made it so that we could understand them. Because there was that first few seconds where it, they would talk and it would translate it for her and she would talk and it would translate it for them. And then she just sets it down and walks away from it and everybody's talking. It's kind of interesting to see that sync up like that. I thought it was really clever because one of the things that Star Trek's always been very bad at is the languages. When do people speak the right language? When are they speaking common versus speaking Klingon or Vulcan or whatever? And it's right. so inconsistent. And there's been jokes in the in you know the the franchise, I think it's uh, I think in Star Trek Six, one of them makes a joke about how only the only the top of the line models can even speak English or whatever, um, as far as the Klingons are concerned and, and things like that. So I like that there is this back and forth that there's a there's a technological reason they can under, understand each other now, and it was introduced in the episode in a not you know techno trekno babble way. Well, let's remember in Star Trek Six. It was revealed that Uhura could not speak Klingon because <laughs> they yeah. they were using right. all they were using all the translation books, and I remember they specifically said we have to respond in Klingon because the universal translator will be discovered. Right, or, recognized. Yeah, yeah. recognized. Mm-hmm. No, that's a really interesting moment too, especially given how in the Kelvin timeline, uh, Uhura not only can can speak Vulcan and Romulan, but can figure out all the different dialects and everything <laughs> like that. She's the, so you think, the super communications officer in Kelvin. Yeah, she's right? basically Hoshi. Right, exactly, yeah. Versus, you know, in, in Star Trek Six, of course, um, you know, she's like reading out of like a giant dictionary <laughs> book. <laughs> uh, which is a great scene. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I love that moment. But in retrospect, it does kind of, you know, put some of some things into question. Because she's been doing this, you know, by that point in Star Trek Six, she's been doing this for... 35 years, I think, <laughs> yep. you know, so you'd think she would know Klingon at least. Yeah, but come on, this is Zoe Saldana. She's, uh, she's Gamora. She's had her time in the galaxy. There you go. There you go. And she, she was unmatched in what, oral sensitivity or something? It's like, uh-huh. <laughs> Anyways, 
So the fight scene was pretty badass. She got the com badge back. Mm-hmm. And um, so the sensors. I was surprised they didn't train uh, shoehorn batleths into this fight. No, because we've they, they have we've little, seen batleths. Yeah, they they are like the super batleths, like we see in uh, one of the earlier episodes where they're a lot more jagged than we we ever saw them in next gen. Yeah, they were using kind of like the hand batleth that uh, Worf uses in DS Nine almost. Yeah, yeah, there's there's another name for it. It has its own name, kind of like you know how we have a, a knife versus a sword. Um, but is it a Chris knife, or is it from something else? No, it's it's still a very Klingon Batlithy name, mm-hmm. you know. Like there's an apostrophe in there somewhere, but right. uh, I I don't know. I, I like the new design of the blades because from a TV budget perspective, the old stuff certainly looked like it could not cut through anything, <laughs> you know. And these at least look like yeah. If you were to stab me with that, I'm gonna have a bad day. That's a good point. <laughs> well, also, they always look so cheap because the the knife, the Klingon knife, always had that like retractable oh. <laughs> handle blade that would pop out, and always kind of looked real, real cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially like in Star Trek Three, you know, where he's there, he's deciding who he's going to kill. He gets you know right behind David, and he presses the, the the button. I guess there's a button that the blades shoot out. Like I, I don't know that. I guess in retrospect, that's not the most practical weapon in the world. It's called a mechleth. Mechleth. There you go. See? So he's similar to Batleth, Mechleth. Okay. There's a Q and an apostrophe in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I will say this about Giorgio's badge. Uh, I totally understand why Michael would keep it, but a little part of me thought she might have given it to Saru. Yeah, he got the telescope, though. He did get the telescope. You're right. You're right. I forgot about that. He doesn't get everything. That's true. That's a good point. So we, they get the sensors on the ship. They're doing the fight. They get Burnham and company out. Uh, I would, what are your guys' thoughts on... So have we kind of decided that the Discovery... Was it purely designed as a war, as a science vessel? Or is it a warship that does science stuff? It was originally designed as a science vessel. That has become a warship because of the spore drive. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the, the decks and the labs and everything, as they first introduced the Discovery, it's definitely a primarily science vessel, but it's, I mean, it's it's loaded for bear. It can handle itself. And it, I mean, it, it took some significant hits from the Ship of the Dead. Like, it, it did. Those were, those were some big old booms. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I kind of think of it as a much larger Voyager, because, you know, the Intrepid class was designed to be a, a science vessel as well, but she could hold her own in a fight, and Discovery is kind of like that, and Lorca even makes a comment about how, you know, the crew, you're, you all started off as, you know, little science officers, and now you're all soldiers, um, and, you know... Uh, when Michael, of course, joins the ship the first time with the other prisoners, they make a comment about how it's all all the, sil- the silver shirts and things like that. So I think it's definitely a science vessel. It's got a nice uh, complement of photon torpedoes now, though. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, I mean, I-, I guess I figured that once the... Fo- you know, just like uh, in Enterprise and just like the Shenzhou, all of, all of the Federation ships basically get torpedoes. Yeah. True. Right, and you know, it's really more of how many banks do they have, how many do they have in reserve, things like that, that really determine how it can hold itself in battle. It's like that one ship in first contact with the Battle of the Borg that was just the Alnos, basically a torpedo gunship because that's all it was doing the entire battle. 
Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure they've they've been refit. You know, if if they needed a, a better weapon weapon complement after they got the spore drive, mm-hmm. kind of in fully functioning shape, they probably you know hit a dry dock and and got some torpedo tubes installed. I would imagine. You know, and of course they they had the advantage in this fight of you know since they were spore jumping, they could always face the Klingon ship the way they wanted to. So we never really had to worry about you know them being you know on the side or aft or anything like that to to see what those weapon banks were like. It was always pretty much head on. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we we definitely learned a few things about spore drive functionality in this episode. Not only can you jump out of out of warp and be stationary, but uh, the jumps can control uh, what angle you pop out at. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like they can reorient the ship during the jump, which maybe that's not super consistent. It just works for the episode. Yeah, because we were seeing he was getting jump coordinates um, yeah. sent to stamens, and those I don't think would have included the the full rotational like X Y Z axis and and all that whatnot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That might just be for the simplicity of, of the thing. Kind of like how you know historically all the ships are lined up nicely when they meet each other in space, and there's no like weird angles because it just looks silly. Right, and every like map of troop formations always has them presented on an X Y axis, as if mm-hmm. all space is completely flat and planar. Exactly. And did you guys happen to catch one of the uh, little, um, I don't even know what to call it, but like an Easter egg, how they announced uh, on the intercom they called for Cadet Decker? No. Yeah, it's in the episode. I think it was in this one and the one before, in two episodes ago. There's an intercom call for Cadet Decker, so I'm all, I think a lot of people are wondering, is that the same Decker that was the first officer in the motion picture? <laughs> or is it just I mean, just a little fun Easter egg to put in there? It could be. I mean, he he very well could have been a, a you know commander or captain by that time. That if he's are if he's just starting out as a cadet, I think that's very reasonable. Because this is ten years before. Well, no, it's going to be about twenty years before the motion picture. Uh, well, so it's ten years before Kirk, and then you've got the five year mission, so that's fifteen years. And I feel like the motion picture had to be sometime after that. Yeah, so, right. So that's a perfect time. He could in fifteen twenty years. He's definitely a captain by then. So regarding the uh, the away mission on the on the ship or the boarding mission or whatever it's we want to call it, um, it was interesting to see. Uh, in addition to her legit like combat tactics, but their their actual tactics of boarding. So they they teleport over with with guns drawn, which I think we've seen before a couple times, but it was kind of noteworthy when it happened then too, where they like like data teleported in kind of a ready action pose, but they were both in like crouching with guns drawn. Mm-hmm. That was, that was cool to see, but also it was odd that they had their guns on stun. Like everybody got stunned, uh, from the Federation phasers, but the Klingon weapons were set to, to kill, kill AF. Well, I think that's again, trying to show that at the end of the day, we don't want this war. The Klingons want this war. And if we can complete our mission without killing anybody, that would be great. Now, of course, in this particular case, it seems counter counterproductive or counterintuitive because the goal is to blow up the ship. So right. does it matter at that point? 
I guess they could justify it by saying if there's something counting life signs on board the ship, if they're stunned, they're not dead, but I, that seems flimsy. Yeah, I, I don't buy that. I mean, maybe maybe Michael and Ash didn't know that the goal was to just completely blow up the ship, no questions asked. Uh, but I, I guess I certainly felt like that that was the the primary purpose. Yeah. So you make a good point. So I guess we could talk a little bit more about um, kind of towards the end of the episode where things start going off the rails. So we've got Lorel on the ship now. She is in the brig, and Ash actually goes to see her. Well, yeah, I mean, let's step back for a second and just say how the, the mission ended up. They, uh, Lorel jumps on Ash as they're being teleported away and and gets brought to to the discovery and then yeah they uh successfully blow up the ship of the dead which is so now this the ship and you know all of these klingons that have been so foundational to the plot of the show so far are kaboom they are gone well yeah to to that point we have now gone through three different klingon leaders four maybe depending on what happens with Laurel. But like this, we're nine episodes in and we've gone through three Klingon leaders. Yeah, which for an empire like the Klingons is... They talk about how destabilized the empire is anyways. So, True. Um, I guess, because I know they were hinting and they kind of mentioned that he had given the cloaking technology to a bunch of other ships. So obviously they still have that, but like you said, they just lost their emperor, for lack of a better term, again. Mm-hmm. It's three in... So Ash was a prisoner for seven months. Let's call it nine months. The war's been going on nine months. Um, add a couple months to his prison his prison time. So prison time. Uh, While well, he was a prisoner of war for seven months. So yeah, if they've been at war nine months, yeah. they've lost three emperors. That's um, I'd say the Klingons are doing pretty good given that. <laughs> well, also, I mean, this is the the legendary cloaking technology like source ship. That was the beacon that united. I mean, it's it's like part of Klingon lore, apparently, to to have this light of Kalos that shone all over the the galaxy and and united the Klingon houses. For that to just be blown up, um, like I, I wonder what the cultural significance of the ship is, or like will the destruction of the ship by the hands of the Federation like unite them just out of pure rage? I don't know. It's a good question because, you know, most of the ships seem to, you know, we, we've kind of been told already have the cloaking technology. So I would think that most of the houses would see this as an opportunity to take control of the Empire, you know, versus, you know, focusing against us. That's a good point. I never even really, I don't know, I never even really thought about that. Because maybe now one of the issues that's going to come up is... Because they, 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 by this point, they didn't unify all of the Klingon houses, did they? Um, I mean, as far as I know, they got pretty close. Hmm. It, it seemed like they were pretty close, and there was only, you know, a few outliers that basically followed Takuvma. Hmm. And we've completely dropped the, the narrative thread of where Lorel brought Vos. Vok? Yeah, Vok is just Vok. gone. Because she was going to bring yeah. him to some kind of matriarchs, but we don't know what that was. Yeah, I mean, we 
I guess I assume that he got where he was supposed to be going and that we will see him at some point. But yeah. until until then, yeah, he's just kind of missing and I can't imagine we'll see him until episode 11 or 12. Right? I mean, we're not going to see him in 10. True. I mean, I I I can't imagine them even finding their way back um with the few episodes that are left cuz who knows where they even are? Like what dimension they're in. And this is a good segue because when when Stamets says, yeah, I'll do one more jump, and the jump obviously goes horribly wrong. Or does it? Or does it? Stamets. Yeah, every Stamets. Maybe it went to somewhere Stamets saw in, during his 133 jumps. Um, well, I, I know people are automatically thinking Mirror Universe, but I don't know. That might be a little bit too easy. I, I think that this was not an accident at all. I think that Lorca is responsible for it because he punches something into his command center right before the jump happens. And uh, it's all over. There's some photos on the internet you can look. It's all zoomed in. And there's all of the previous coordinates from the the previous 133 jumps. And then he he changes it. He overrides it. He has, you know, Lorca doesn't override. And it says destination unknown. Huh. They're just in null space. Well, I think it was more of just they didn't, like, we don't have the charts for that. So the, the Discovery doesn't know where they went. Right. So. So there's also the fact that um, he was going to be granted the Legion of Honor when they when they head back to Doc. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think that's that's Caldwell's trap? Um, uh, Cornwall. You mean Cornwall? I, I, yeah. No, I, I don't. I because I I really do think that she hasn't had an opportunity to tell anybody yet. You know, because she's she's on a, a medical ship. She's still you know in severe. She's severely injured still. So this was that uh, the Vulcan admiral, and um, I think that they they don't know any of the negatives. They really only know the positives. Yeah, he disobeyed orders a little bit here and there, but you know, kind of the uh, cost reward situation. You know, and even then, if... but if, if you're Lorca, are you willing to take that chance? Um. I mean, I think I think that's my point. I think that's why he he's the one who does the override and he tries to send the ship somewhere else and he wants to explore these other dimensions. Um, I think that the mirror universe is is fairly reasonable, simply because I, I think that we start going down the rabbit hole if we start introducing too many universes um, in the first season right. of the show. So I think mirror universe is just safe because. Either you know what that means, or the concept seems pretty straightforward. And if this if this show falls into the regular canon of the timeline, and knowing what the Enterprise, the TV show Enterprise, went through with the Mirror Universe, maybe Starfleet's kept it somewhat hidden, and Lorca somehow knows about it, or at least knows it well, exists. That hasn't happened yet, right? Mirror Mirror is not for like another eleven years. Oh, I thought no, I thought the TV show Enterprise they had a Mirror Universe episode. So they, they did, and this is where this, this gets really complicated. In that episode, our, the people from our universe don't go to that universe. We, the episode takes place in that universe, and the USS Discovery ends up in that universe and gets you know all messed up. And that's why it ties into the original series episode, where the, the Enterprise finds the Defiant all destroyed. Oh, oh the Defiant goes to that universe. Yeah. You said the Discovery. Oh, I'm sorry, the Defiant. USS Defiant. Um, and so we don't really know, like, they don't, Kirk doesn't know 
how the ship got messed up. He doesn't know that it, it went to the mirror universe. I need like a whiteboard. So I've been, I've been, I'm, I'm a couple episodes away from that one. So the defiant, as in like Worf's no, Worf no, no. And sisters it's another, defiant. It's another a different con- defiant. Yeah, okay. it's, it's a Constitution class starship. Gotcha. So it's one of the twelve uh, Constitution class ships, and I, 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 I want to say the episode is the the Doomsday Machine episode, but that might be wrong. Uh, but yeah, they find the defiant. It's all beat up. Chunks of it are missing, and all that. They don't really know what happened to the ship. And then Enterprise retconned it with uh, In the Mirror Darkly is the name of the Enterprise episode. Um, so I, I think at this point that doing a Mirror Universe episode, just it, it's, it just makes more sense than another universe. But there's also a lot of people that believe the whole idea of this discovery looking different and feeling different is that it's already in a different universe. And it's the prime timeline, but it's a parallel universe from that timeline. What? No. Just saying that's, that's so out convoluted. there. It's a little convoluted. It's very multiverse for those who watch Flash, you know. Well, here's... So if it's the Mirror Universe, do you think they're going to spend a couple episodes in there, or just the one? I'm going to guess it's just the one. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I would guess they're going to be there a little while because, I mean, in the previews for the next ep- episode, we see Stamens with his eyes are all glowed out white, and and he can see all the stars. I don't, I don't think they're, you know, undoing that that etch a sketch in in one app. That that seems like a big, yeah, big shakeup. I mean, I hope you're right. I think it would be more interesting if they spent more time there. So I'm good with it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, my my prediction is that they're they're probably going to be wherever they are until the end of this season, and by the time they get back, if they get back, like the the Klingon conflict will be over because I think we we've seen the arc of like the the way to beat the cloaking technology is now disseminated. Uh, the ship of the dead, which was the inciting incident, has now been destroyed. And all of the Klingons that we knew are dead, except for Vos, who's, or Voke, who's kind of a background character. And then Lorel is on the ship, and her whole conflict is, like, right now between her and Ash. So I feel like the all of the plot threads re-Klingons kind of have been dealt with in the first half. So I, I would guess they're not going to deal with it anymore. Maybe. Maybe. I imagine Voke has to show up at some point. And maybe that's, I mean, I don't know... I, it was originally a 13-episode run, and they had the Vogue story planned for that. So he's got to show up in at some point before the end of this 15 episodes to just show us that he's not dead, right? Yeah, you would think. Because there's no way he's dead. He's got to be... Somewhere. Somewhere. I mean, maybe maybe the, the season finale is going to be the an epic Klingon battle in, with the Federation and the Matriarch fleet shows up and attacks both. And you're like, wait a second, what? Or maybe the matriarchs are the the peacemakers that eventually end the the war. End the war, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. How long, like in in Federation history, how long does the Klingon War go? Four years. Four years. Okay. Yeah, that's so they why got, uh, they got a ways. Yeah, that's why Axanar, the fan production Axanar, wanted to call that uh, they focus on the four years war. That's what they call it. Um, so, huh. Well, I mean. Who knows? 
we got some exciting times. We got two months to speculate, so that's going to make things interesting for all of us. And we do. And speaking of speculation, I know um, last week, uh, Derek, you got to attend Kansas City Comic Con, and Jeremy, I know you were there with them a little bit. But you got you got to do a yep. pretty special interview, didn't you, Derek? I did. Yes, I was lucky enough to get to meet Doug Jones, who of course plays Saru on Star Trek Discovery. He's played countless other incredible creature characters like Abe Sapien in Hellboy, um, and he was several characters in Pan's Labyrinth. He was uh, a, a gentleman in Buffy and, and other things, and so he's been in tons and tons of stuff. He's a wonderful actor. And he was nice enough to do an interview with us um, that we are going to tack on to the end of this episode here, if you continue listening. And the video, the full interview, will be available on our YouTube channel if you go to heroespodcast.com and click on the YouTube link. um, And you'll be able to get the full video version of this interview. Uh, What we have here is just going to be part of it, uh, because we talked about some non-Star Trek stuff too. But I wanted to make sure that you guys could get a listen. So I do apologize that the audio quality will not be quite as good as when we're normally doing a show because we were out on the convention floor. But uh, if you bear with that, I think you will enjoy it. Awesome. Well, before we splice that interview into the uh, into this podcast, what, you, uh, Derek? What were your final thoughts, and then and then on the Jeremy on this season mid season finale for Star Trek Discovery? It's so good, and moving episode 9 to the first half of the season as chapter 1 was a really genius decision, because uh, the cliffhanger on the previous episode, while interesting, does not pack the same punch that this one does, and uh, that's not to you know say anything negative about uh, last week's episode, it was a great episode, but this cliffhanger, the stakes are so much higher, what just happened is so much more intense, and they're... The, the, the situation is so precarious that I just cannot wait for January now to see what happens. Yeah, and I mean, I'm in the same, I'm on the same page there in that this was just fantastic, and I definitely had some some issues with Discovery early on with the pacing and the lack of kind of love given to the the characters and just the. Klingon's inability to fully act when speaking in Klingon, those those sections kind of not tying together. Um, but I feel like they they finally close the loop where Klingons are, are speaking English and able to actually act. And they sound like Klingons as we know them, where it's that very deep and, you know, intense, almost Shakespearean, as opposed to that, you know, grunting, growling Klingon, that it's so hard to convey emotion with that. Um but yeah, I just, I, I feel like we're there. Uh, I'm, I'm getting less and less concerned kind of the deeper we get into the active cast that they're not showing us uh, the cool robot cast and, and the various people on the bridge. <clears throat> it's interesting to just see this show where it's like, it's, it's not all of the, the, the bridge crew and, and the higher ups and the commanders. It's just like, you know, a cross section of these are the characters that we're following as as we go through this, and we see the smaller bunks, and we see the security chief who's got some troubles, and I don't know, just it, it, what they've what they've built kind of culminated with this episode, and I feel like they've done such a great job. And uh, for those who are thinking about uh, canceling their CBS All Access, uh, if you go through the process of canceling it, it will just give you a free month. So if you want to save seven bucks, just go. Try and cancel, and it'll say, like, hey, what if we just give you a free month until Star Trek comes back? 
Yeah, I'm just going to give a small rebuttal to that. There were a couple guys I bumped into at the convention that didn't they, they were they were kind of frustrated that we talked discovery because they don't want to pay and they don't want to uh, they don't want to uh, be part of CBS's money machine. And look, I, I, I don't mean this to sound mean or, or rude or anything like that, uh, but TV shows and movies exist to make money. That's what they are for. So if Discovery cannot be profitable, they will not continue to make it. That's just a fact. So if you want Star Trek, sometimes you have to pay for it. And for $6 a month, I mean, I see movies, movie tickets are 10 and $15 a piece now for two, two and a half hours of content. Um, you, you can pay 6 bucks for four hours of Star Trek a month. I think it's fair. Um, if you can't find room in your budget for the $6, then, you know... That that's then it's not for you. But to, I think we're at a point in 2017 where these types of streaming shows are the future of television, and that's how you get bigger budgets, like eight million dollars an episode, and how you get production quality, like we're seeing on Discovery. Well, and that's that's true, and I don't I don't contest any point of that. But they've set it up in such a way where you're locked into a subscription, and then the show's going off the air for two months while you're paying the subscription fee. So, you know, if, if people drop it for a couple months and pick it back up, that's kind of, that's, that's subscribers saying, I'm not paying to watch all of the Star Trek back catalog, which I have on Hulu and Young Sheldon and Big Bang Theory. I'm not funding that. No, no, no. That's totally fine. I'm not, I'm not saying that you should pay for the service when you're not using it. I certainly do not mean that at all because uh, I, I do the same thing for, for HBO and Stars and Showtime. I pay for them when the shows I, I want to watch are on, but I do pay for them when right. the shows I want to watch are on. So for those you know out there who are like, well, you know, I'll just wait until I can torrent it or I, I'll just wait until I can you know rip it from somebody or, or whatever. I mean, le- legal complications aside, uh, all you're doing is hurting the ratings for a franchise that you claim to love. And so if CBS gets the picture that their their sales go up high when Star Trek is airing and low when it's not, that sends them the signal that we want more Star Trek. That's a good point. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, but then there's the philosophical discussion of, like, what if you have absolutely no way of paying for it? And it's like if you're 16 or something. Of course. I'm not yeah, speaking but, to everybody. I'm right. not. But if you're in your 30s or 40s and you, don't, you you tell me you don't want to, quote, pay into the CVS money-making machine, and that's your right. reason, then I, I don't think you're, you're really thinking through how television works. If you can pay for a three-day badge for Kansas City Comic Con, you can afford 16 hours of Star Trek Discovery for, you know, 30 bucks. That, that's kind of all I mean, so... <laughs> Rant, rant over. <laughs> ah, that's a good. That's a good rant. Yeah. So. Well, I think all three of us agree. We love this episode. It's very trekky. Characters, characters are getting to their badass points. You're getting to meet more of them. Getting to see more of them. I think you can see online everybody's just falling more in love with Stamets every week. Oh yeah. <laughs> Which mm-hmm. would you think? And now he's going to be like space, like unlocked Stamets. We'll have to see what this. What new powers it grants him. He's like Warhammer 40k God Emperor statements now. Because you can see, yeah. see everything. Um, well, and it's it's the melange. The, the, the dune spice is what those mushrooms are. So he's like a fully ooh. unlocked navigator now. That's right. I like it. He's a navigator. I like it. 
<laughs> well, we all we all like the episode. Uh, we're going to splice in Derek's interview with uh, with Saru. I know his real name, but to me, he will be Saru for now on. Yes. Um, just like a, well, and it's less complicated because there's another very prominent Doug Jones in the news right now. So yeah, true. It's easier to just call him Saru. Just like Brent Spiner, everybody calls him Data. Uh, but right. So right before we close out, Derek, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they find you? Well, uh, first off, if you ever have a chance to meet Doug Jones, take that chance. He might be the nicest person I've ever met in my life. No offense to anybody else out there who is also nice. Uh, But I am at the Star Trek dude on Twitter and Facebook. Come say hi to me. And Jeremy. I am at Zen Munkin on Twitter, and I'm also hosting another podcast on the network called uh, Saturday Morning Tooncast, which is a show about cartoons and cereal that airs on Saturdays. All right, and uh, if you want to track me down, I'm on Twitter at the underscore bittersteel and also on Yahoo at the underscore bittersteel at yahoo.com. So uh, appreciate everybody listening to the eighth episode of Red Shirts and Runabouts, which is part of the Heroes Podcast Network. And stay tuned because we got the interview coming up. And don't worry, everybody, just because the show's going on a uh, mid-season break, we are not, and we will be back at the same time and place next week. All right, Derek, Jeremy, shall we? Yep. Energize. All right, guys, we are at Kansas City Comic Con. I'm here with the one and only Doug Jones. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm the only one, really? Yeah, I, I, I'd hope so. I, I would hope so. I, hope, I wouldn't put this curse on anybody else. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, so you have a lot of things to have done. You yeah. started off, I remember your... Uh, um, panel at Gripcon a few years ago here in Kent oh, City. Thanks. You're talking yeah. about your big Mac at night. Yeah, Mac tonight. Yes, yes. The, yes. The Crescent Moonhead. That's that what started me off in this world. I was my fourth commercial book in the TV back in 1980. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've done a lot of things. You've done the Ape Sapien from the Hellboy franchise, um, The Gentleman from Buffy, um, you have your new movie coming out, The Shape of Water, uh, is there anything else that I've missed, oh, the new Star Trek Star Trek show. Discovery, right. Uh, and then, of course, the Pan's Labyrinth, right. you were, were everything in there, right, um, right. and that's one of my favorite films. Oh, thank um, you. So, um, what really inspired you to become an actor? Oh, gosh, survival, I think. Um, I was a goofy kid, and I, I, uh, I became a class clown so that I could make sense of why people were laughing at me. <laughs> now, if I came in the room doing an armpit fart and saying something silly, then now I know why they're laughing at me instead of just because I walked in the room, right? So uh, so developing a sense of humor and humor, and that, came in, that was inspired by the old TV shows that were on when I was a kid, uh, sitcoms and variety shows like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore and... Gilligan's Island, Gomer Pyle, you know, uh, I Love Lucy, oh gosh, and um, uh, the Carol Burnett Show, any movies that Jerry Lewis or Danny Kaye were in, those are all my tall, skinny, goofy characters that, like, that didn't look normal, that were making a career out of it. That's what inspired me. Now, if you could have, if you could portray any character, who would it be? That I haven't done in anything, yeah. Well, sort of dream role that you have. Right. Well, I that that's uh, here's here's a two part answer for you. Okay. I um uh, like five years ago I would, I would have told you it's Nosferatu, uh, uh, Count Orlok. I would love to do a well. I would love to play. A, I hadn't played a bad pirate at that point, and I would love to play 
and I'm too old and gross to play a, a pretty sparkling young vampire, right? Yeah. So I thought an old gross one would be Nosferatu, or Count Orlock. I think he's perfect for me, right? But it's been done, and I thought, oh, you'd have to be a remake. And although if, if it was, then we, I would love to do it in a classic style that the, that the silent film was made in. Well, here's part two of the answer. I got to do that. It hasn't come out yet. You haven't seen it yet. But yes, I saw photos of it last year. Yeah. Uh, when from, is from that a coming test out? You saw. Yes. Uh, uh, well, it'll be all finished and ready to, uh, for distribution mid-2018. So uh, we have several distributors clamoring to get it from us. So... Uh, so I'm very excited to see. I, I'm not so I don't have a release date for you yet, but, but hopefully 2018. But hopefully, uh, hopefully by October 2018. Oh, yes. Yeah, and hopefully to do um, a theatrical run that would be um, uh, smaller art house, older vintage theaters across the country to do special screenings, and then of course streaming and DVD and all that. Yeah, yeah, I'm a huge fan of the classic films, and so when I saw that you were doing that. My excitement even grew. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's so now. Now that I've played Count Olaf in this costume, I don't have an answer to that. Uh, is there one more character I haven't played yet? No, there's not. <laughs> I've done them all now. Really to satisfy my, my, my appetite. Have you ever done like um, theatrical shows? Have you ever been on stage or have you only? Yeah, like back back in the day, I was uh, I was a. Um, I did a lot of stage in high school, college, uh, but, but as an adult, I've done the smaller hundred seat theaters in, in LA a couple of times just because friends asked me to be in their show. It was only running one or two weekends. But committing to a play is like committing to a month of rehearsal and however many months the show runs. So that's a time commitment that, that the, the film and TV career often clashes with, unfortunately. So, but I would love to, that's on my bucket list to do something on Broadway before I die, whatever that is, I don't know. Do you have a favorite Broadway show? Uh, well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I want to be in one that's already been done. I, I'd like to be in an original piece, I think, probably. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, maybe, I've often said it would be kind of fun to do a, a live Broadway production of uh, A Nightmare Before Christmas and play Jack Skeleton on stage. If that could ever be done. My but, girlfriend's going to love that answer. Okay, okay, good, okay, good, good, good. But, you know, I don't know. I'm not getting any younger. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if I can pull that something like that off or not. I think that'd be pretty fantastic. Yeah. All right, Derek, did you have any questions about the Star Trek? Yeah, I'll ask a couple of Star Trek questions, if you don't mind. Oh, sure, sure, come on here. So, hey, Derek. Hi. Now, are we being heard okay with the... Yeah, I'm pretty okay. good. I can fix all the audio. Okay. Okay. Um, so, of course, you are Saru on Discovery. Yes. And uh, so I'm, I'm a big Trekkie, as everyone who's watching will know. We, we actually have a, a dedicated Star Trek podcast no, that we do. Great, great, so um, how does it feel to be part of such a, a large franchise, and you're, you're stepping into it now, kind of this, this whole new generation? No, it's a huge honor. I, I've been working as an actor for over 30 years now, and I've done a lot of science fiction, a lot of horror, a lot of comic book things fantasy, worn a lot of rubber makeups on, on myself. And the question that kept coming up over those 30 years was, have you ever been in a Star Trek anything? And I kept saying, well, no, I really haven't. Uh, so I thought that that, that that ship had sailed up for me. But, um, Diane? But when I got offered Star Trek Discovery, it was like, what? Uh, and it, I didn't have audition for it. I was just being offered it. So wow. it was like, uh, 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 it was a, I was just dumbfounded and flabbergasted with the um, because this is a huge legacy coming with it, a huge fan base already built in that's coming with it, uh, you know, uh, and, and a part of my childhood that I, that I get to live out now. Because I, I was born in 1960. The original series, you know, started in 66, so I was watching it on network television with my family. Uh, 
So it's become part of my life. And when Next Generation came, it was like, what? A new, uh, uh, wow. And then, you know, within, uh, with uh, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager, and Enterprise, and now, now to be in Discovery, that takes 10, 10 years before, it takes place 10 years before the original series. It's like, oh my gosh, so this is, I get to be a part of a story that, that leads into the Kirk and Spock days that I know. That was so exciting, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, so I played on screen with, uh, with uh, the legendary Vulcan, uh, Sarek, Spock's dad, who also raised um, our lead actress, uh, 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 Michael Burnham character, played by Samantha Martin Green. Uh, she's a human who was raised by by Spock's parents and went through Vulcan Academy, the first team to ever do that. So my character is Saru. I'm a, I'm a Kelpian. So I'm, a, I'm a, a, an alien species that's never been seen in any other Star Trek ever before. So that's been an honor for me to, to introduce or help introduce a, a new species to the whole canon of, of Star Trek, right? So uh, how did you create that kind of, since it's never been in Star Trek before, yeah. how did you come up with, you know, the way you move is very different no, from right, you know, yeah. some of your other characters. So no. how did you come up with, you know, the walk and you know, the way, you know, the hands move and all that kind of stuff for something that didn't exist before? I know, I know, right. So, well, first of all, the makeup itself was designed by uh, Neville Page and Glenn Petrick of Alchemy Labs in L.A. They might have been instrumental in getting me cast in this because they knew I have worked with them before. And uh, so... So, my makeup artist on set is James McKinnon, and he does a great job applying the pieces that those other guys designed. <laughs> so, anyway, that that design is beautiful and and it's uh, and, and, and different and, and kind of endearing looking. Uh, so, what came with that design was hoof feet. Well, these hoof boots that I have to wear, I'm up on the balls of my feet, kind of, kind of puts my, my pelvis a little bit forward to keep my balance. And that really, that instantly informed a whole new posture for an alien I'd never played before. And the, instead of my arms dangling at my sides, they dangle slightly behind me. So I thought, well, when I start walking in these hoof feet, I, my, my arms kind of wanted to go side to side. And instead of front and back, they wanted to go side to side. So that kind of gave him like, oh, well, there it is. I think we found his walk and his stance and his his uh, posture. Fantastic. So, informed by the boots, thank heaven. Because, you know, after 30 years of playing all these different characters, the challenge for me is to make it different than the last one I played. So, uh, so thank heaven for the footwear. It really helped a lot, yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time. Is there For anybody who hasn't checked out the new show yet, how would you kind of reel them in? Well... It's old Star Trek and new Star Trek. It, it's, uh, there's, uh, there's flavors of all of it to entice the, the Trekkies who have been growing with it for decades and the people who are just new to Star Trek now. Uh, there's something for everyone in this you can pick up with, with our show. Uh, there's It's a cinematic show, so the, the, the visual effects, the look of it is extremely movie quality. Uh, to compete with everything else that's out there on the HBO and the Netflix and the hoo-ha. Uh, in, in the age of binge-watching, you have to be very cinematic and movie-like now. So that's all very much there. It's a very high-budget show. Every episode costs a lot of money to make. So uh, so it, it, has a, it has a look that will, that will keep you intrigued. And it has, a, uh, it has all of the markings and accents and, and the canon and the, the reverence to 
original Star Trek, and it carries out Gene Roddenberry's vision uh, as, as he meant for it to be. So uh, uh, there's something for everyone in this. Fantastic. Yeah. And your movie, The Shape of Water, comes out in December? Shape of Water comes out December 8th in theaters everywhere. So that's Guillermo del Toro's new movie that I am also in. It's my sixth movie with him. Uh, and uh, so I'm very honored to be a part of that. It's a gorgeous story. Uh, it's a love story that takes place in 1963 during the Russian Cold War in a U.S. government test facility. I'm a freak of nature fish man, and my, the lady I fall in love with is a janitor lady at the works of that facility. Fantastic. So there you go. So, love buds, and uh, unlike other monster movies, uh, this time the, the monster gets the chance. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, there go you go. see The Shape of Water, and of course, see Star Trek Discovery on CBS All, All Access. Right. Uh, new episode Sunday night at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. That's right. That is right. Thank you very much, though, Jones. Oh, thank, thank you. You are fantastic. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.